And another thing And another thing And another thing And another thing Welcome to another episode of And Another Thing Podcast. I'm your co-host, Tony Clement. Jody Jenkins, I know this is going to upset some people. He unfortunately had to bail at the last moment, but we are going to continue with the show and certainly hope that Jody will be back with me and that we'll be together again next week. But for the time being, it is myself and, of course, our sponsors, municipalsolutions.ca. John Mutton and the gang are our presenting sponsor, as usual. And they are Ontario's leading MZO firm. What does that mean? Well, it means they are there for development services and project management, uh, development approval, permit expediting, planning services with municipalities, even engineering and architectural services, and things like minor variances and land severances, they can do that as well. So you go to municipalsolutions.ca and they will be there for you. And of course, we also want to thank Hunters Bay Radio, 88.7 FM in Muskoka, where they have our podcast rebroadcast on terrestrial radio every Saturday morning, along with a host of other podcasts as well. I noticed on social media, finally, that it's the third anniversary of Lord and Lady Coffee. Remember them? They were one of our original sponsors, and I know Jody has an interest in that particular business as well as a little bit of a side hustle. And congratulations to Lord and Lady Coffee for your three-year anniversary. Started in the middle of the pandemic. I mean, that's, uh, man, when you can do that, that's, uh, that's something. Our guest today is none other than Rick Perkins, Member of Parliament. He was elected to be the MP for the riding of South Shore St. Margaret's in the province of Nova Scotia in the 2021 federal election. He is currently the shadow minister for innovation, science, and industry, formerly the shadow minister of fisheries, oceans, and the Canadian Coast Guard. Rick, welcome to the program. Thrilled to be here, Tony. So before we get to the serious stuff, <laughs> I think uh, we go back. I, I know this is, this is crazy, but I, I think we go back like, 41 years. Is that possible? Yeah, 19, uh, 1980, I think we first yeah. met. Okay, well, that's even more. Maybe 80, no, sorry, 81. I, I was first year university in 80 and got elected to student council, I guess, at the end of that first year. That's when I met you. And I supported you in that election. You were part yeah. of the sane ticket rather than the communists. Yeah. And uh, and so that was one of my first instances of getting involved on campus politics versus party politics. And you served as vice president of the U of T uh, Student Council. And uh, we got to know one another. And really, I mean, I mean, maybe there's been a little bit of a break here and there uh, because I, I know obviously you moved out to Nova Scotia and you had a whole career there. But we, we've been more or less in contact since then, right? Oh, we've been friends, I think, uh, uh, fair to say from my end anyway, Tony, we've been friends ever since. Uh, uh, you know, we worked on lots of, cut our teeth on lots of campaigns back in university. You led the uh, 
the charge to pull out of the Canadian. Well, uh, technically, it wasn't to pull out of the Canadian Federation of Students, but it just was not to, fund them. It was to not it was not to accept a doubling of their fees. Yes, yes. The left yes. always wants to double their taxes. They, they want to they keep those taxes rising. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and, and, and you led the charge on that on the campus and. Uh, I think the result at the end was overwhelmingly no, which meant that I, something like a third of the Canadian Federation of Students funding was pulled because U of T was so huge. Yes, yes, we, we had a very strong campaign. And uh, I remember the editorials kept coming out from the same campus newspapers in favor of not funding them. And they they would go around in a van and pick up literally hundreds and thousands of newspapers and put them in this cube van so that so that students wouldn't be able to read why how how horrible they were so you know that was unique you know uh, at that time i don't think it exists anymore at u of t you had the student financed paper from our fees the varsity Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. i probably still exists but you had the newspaper right Uh, yeah the newspaper was called the newspaper and believe it or not, it was a student university newspaper for all those listeners who don't know, funded on advertising with no fees from gov- from students. Well, what why aren't they about? listening to that model uh, when it comes to Bill C eighteen? That's what I want to know. Oh, isn't that a isn't that a, a C eighteen and C eleven and C eleven? Uh, yeah, C eleven C eighteen imposes the fees, and C eleven is where the government. The Liberal government this time says, you know what, Um, we're going to try and impose uh, some arbitrary definition of what Canadian content is on the internet. Yeah. And so unlike their last attempt to do this, this time they say they're not requiring the algorithms of the uh, internet providers to give that to the CRTC, but they just want to make sure that the algorithms they write ensure that the... Uh, Canadian content, however the CRTC defines it, floats to the top. You wouldn't ever want it to be the things on your search engine that float to the top being the things that are the most popular and interesting and most commonly sought after by Mm, users of social media. It's got to be driven by the CRTC. It's more government overreach, of course, and uh, there are amazing uh, Canadian content providers. I mean, you're on a show right now. We are a Canadian content provider, and as Jody would say, we set the bar. But in all seriousness, you know, uh, there's all these Canadians doing great work in terms of news and entertainment and sports. And uh, no, uh, government is going to decide uh, what people listen to. That's C-18 bill is the partner bill to C-11. So yeah. what C-18 does is C-18 says that uh, social media providers uh, have to pay a fee to a Canadian government fund every time you and I and our friends post a media article. Yeah. So if you say, you know, I really liked uh, an article I saw in the National Post or the Globe and Mail or an opinion piece, and you repost it, uh, uh, Facebook, Twitter, they're going to have to pay the government a fee, and that fee will go to fund arts in Canada, run by a government-appointed agency, of course, because that fund in the past had been driven by uh, uh, fees off of advertising on traditional broadcast media. 
Right. We and, did have this fund in the past, but they yeah. dramatically but it's been diminishing, right? As yes. as traditional yes. broadcast media has diminished and the world has moved over to get their information from things like your podcast. And right. and uh, and so that fund diminishes. So you wouldn't be a liberal government if you said, well, let's find a way to tax that and get that money back so we can help fund all those CBC programs that nobody watches. Now, have you been, you've been part of the, I guess, in your role as a shadow minister, it's mostly, I guess, Heritage Canada, but you, you play a role as the shadow minister for industry too on this, eh? Yeah, I mean, one of the problems we have, obviously, in many of our industries in Canada, that over the years we've now developed so many oligopolistic industries, which is why we rank last in productivity and our Western counterparts in the OECD. But that aside, uh, when C11 was before the parliamentary committee uh, studying it last uh, May and June, we were using every parliamentary tool that we could to uh, delay and uh, amend it. Uh, and so they, uh, I, I don't sit on the Heritage Committee, but I was had done a little filibustering in another committee. So they brought me in to help filibuster on that, on that committee uh, uh, to try and delay it. You know, when your, your listeners may think, well, this is kind of silly stuff when, you know, uh, you know, I'll sit there in a committee on this and talk about my deep, dark past on things or somebody's going to read newspaper articles to prevent them right. from doing business. But in the opposition, and particularly when the NDP and the Liberals are in a costly coalition, the only way we have to try and slow things down, the currency of the House, is time. And, uh, and our only tool is to utilize that time as much as we can to prevent them from doing these things and hope that we can run out the parliamentary calendar on them and they don't get passed. Um, and so I, I helped out a bit on that, but ultimately uh, they had done something, Tony, I don't know in your parliamentary career, uh, both at Queens Park and in Ottawa, if you had ever seen this, the Liberals actually imposed closure at committee. Yeah, that's very rare. That's very rare, for sure. So closure in the House is one thing, but closure in the committee. And they did that by basically saying when we got to the 400 amendments that we proposed to the bill, yeah, that uh, the uh, amendment could not be read out and it could not be debated. And they used the majority with the NDP in the House to pass that rule and enforce it on the committee. Now, it's interesting you're talking about filibuster because, of course, the Liberals who are in power, of course are doing their own filibuster at committee uh, to do with the Chinese Communist Party interference issue. Uh, Because uh, you, uh, by that I mean the Conservative Party, wanted the the chief of staff to the prime minister to testify about uh, what was known and what was done about uh, reports of Chinese Communist Party interference. And uh, the liberals are doing everything they can to filibuster so that that is not going to happen. They don't want Katie Telford to testify. Um, so tell us a little bit about that. I know we're we're speaking at a point in time, and there's going to be a vote in the House of Commons very very soon on this. But uh, let's let's just sort of set the scene for our uh, listeners. Sure. Now I'll just do the tie, and then maybe ta- take it back a bit to the beginning, if that's sure. okay. So the tie, obviously. Uh, 
consistency of argument, Tony, as you, you well know, has never been a strong point of liberals. Uh, they're okay to, on one hand, suck and say, uh, you know, you should be filibustering the bills that they want. And on the right. other hand, filibuster themselves when it's not going their way. And when it's not going their way, on a fairly, not fairly, a really fundamental element of our entire democratic system. And that that is the interference in our election by a foreign government is bad enough, but by a foreign government that is uh, inserting itself into all aspects of our life from influencing uh, votes in ridings in the last election, the last two elections, 2019 and 2021, right down to their control and ownership of many their growing control of many of our important companies in Canada. It's a very long-term and strategic role that the Communist Party of China has. They take a, a very much longer view of everything. And they are, uh, frankly, under the, 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 the current regime, he just got elected the, to the third term, uh, have a, uh, an expansionist, world domination type of uh, uh, philosophy of the, the Chinese communist regime. Uh, they, they want to control what's going on in other countries, and they make no bones about it. The, the consul general for China in Vancouver has bragged multiple times about defeating conservative candidates in the last election. And we can talk a bit about how you do, do that, because I've talked to some of them. You may know some of the former MPs like Kenny Chu, yeah, and uh, Alice Wong. Alice Wong, but even in Toronto, Tony, like uh, Leona Alsef, right? Yes. When you look, when you look at what happened in ridings around Toronto, where where conservative MPs lost in the last election, liberals won those ridings, but they won it with the same amount of vote that they got in 2019 when they lost. Not a right. percentage, the actual same number of votes. So why did the Tories lose? In Leona's case, for example, 7,000 conservative votes from 2019 disappeared. They just right. didn't show up. And that's called voter suppression. And and, and we should make the point, we should make the point that that was not common or usual for the 2021 election. Right. Uh, we, we, in fact, uh, gained votes in that election compared to 2019. So this is very unusual. Well, and we won we won seats like mine, which we hadn't yeah. won since 2011 in Atlantic Canada. So we picked up seats. And in the post-analysis that the Conservative campaign did, and I remember having uh, many discussions with our leader then, Aaron O'Toole, and the an internal analysis shows, showed somewhere fairly certain that 10 Conservative MPs lost in 2021 as a result of that. Chinese interference by our campaign teams look at what happened in the ridings and what the diaspora of of uh, the breakup, uh, uh, the makeup of the riding was, right. and and it may have been as high as twenty. But but so when the prime minister and the liberals get up and say, well, we're confident that the election wasn't impacted. Well, you ask the people in Kenny Chu's riding and Leona Alsef's riding whether their representation was impacted by Chinese interference. And yes, even if you look at 10, you say, well, 10 
uh, more Tories had won and 10 less Liberals had won, the Liberals would have still been in government. That's sort of their point. They might have been in government with the coalition with the NDP. Right. But the, the point is, the fundamental element of how we elect people to represent us in Ottawa in at least 10 communities was impacted by foreign hostile state interference. And for some reason, the Liberal governments don't think that's worthy of an inquiry. Well, and I think the other thing too, and you touched on this, uh, is that you know we're dealing with Canadian citizens, Chinese Canadian citizens, who are being bullied and manipulated by a foreign power uh, and that isn't good for democracy. So, you know, you can say, well, you know, uh, we're, we would we would still be the government. But, you know, what about the Chinese Canadian diaspora that, uh, you know, are, uh, you know, it's very clear that the Chinese Communist Party is trying to bully them and to uh, threaten them and maybe threaten their family members back in China, whatever tools they're using. Uh, to get a desired result. So that, that's exactly what happened. Outrageous. You remember, Tony? You know, I I tried a few times myself to get in Parliament. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. A lot of those occasions, every campaign I ran in, and I think everyone you ran in, I we helped each other and, and knocked on doors. And in 1997, you'll recall, Tony, when you were uh, provincial, mm-hmm. uh, you offered and came out and helped me when I ran in Scarborough Agent Court in Toronto. That's right. And uh, went door to door. Now, it was a different time in terms of the, the where the party was at. But I can tell you in a highly uh, uh, a highly populated riding like Scarborough Agent Court of, of Chinese population, a lot at that time from Hong Kong, um, my experience at the door was uh, that there is a great fear of government for those Chinese Canadians who have come here uh, from that regime and escaped it, but still harbor a great fear of the government. And so when we would, I would knock on doors, I was running against a member of the government, a fellow named Jim Carriagianis, and uh, there, was a, there was a great fear of being seen to do anything against the government. They weren't used to sort of our version of party politics. And mm-hmm. so uh, it's, it, it's, it's a community that, um, uh, because of the dictatorship that they've had to the authoritarian rules they've had to live under, is very fearful of government. And so when uh, WhatsApp and a couple of other things, what, what uh, the candidates told me was happening was that uh, you referenced it, Tony, that things like out and out to everybody, the Chinese government and Chinese operatives, including the people who operate these police stations in Toronto for the Chinese Communist Party, uh, uh, have been, uh, we're saying, we know how you vote. We will know how you vote. And and that was an intimidation. On top of that, they could target individuals and say, you still have family here in China, you have business interests, a lot of People, you know, that we're in a global economy and a lot of uh, very successful entrepreneurial uh, uh, Chinese immigrants and citizens now in Canada have strong business ties back to one of the world's largest markets and economies. And and the threats to what might happen to their family, what might happen to the business was huge. And I think some of the most outrageous things 
that I was told by some of our candidates is that they were being told that if you vote for conservatives and the conservatives win, conservatives will throw you into an internment camp and take away your assets. So this is how you voter suppress, uh, right. uh, particularly with a community that is fearful of government and particularly the escape the Chinese government, uh, but it's still being intimidated them by them on our own soil. And so the puzzling thing is, uh, and there was a CSIS report, which is where some of this started a few months ago. It started, it actually came out on, I think, the last day of the sitting in June. Uh, a CSIS report came out that said there are were 11 candidates in the Toronto area that had been significantly influenced in the federal election in uh, 20, I think it was 2019. They weren't dealing, it wasn't about 2021, but it happened right. in 2021. Yeah, the first, the first reports were about 2019. Right. And there were about 11 candidates that were under the strong influence through the nomination process, through the, uh, the money that flowed to the campaigns, and through uh, volunteers. So we might say, well, how, do, how does somebody or some country influence a candidate with volunteers? Uh, one, they were paying, but the accusation is they were paying, uh, the, uh, the consul general here was paying two families of sympathetic Communist Party of China families, paying their children uh, and their relatives to go and volunteer in campaigns. And yeah, which is, which is illegal under the Elections Act, right? Totally illegal. And uh, the candidates may not have known they were being paid. Uh, I'll give them that because, you know, it's so hard to find volunteers for anything these days, let alone campaigns. And you embrace campaigns and volunteers that come into your, into your campaign. And, and uh, you've been elected a lot more than I have been so far, Tony. But you know how important you treat volunteers after you're elected. 100%. Yeah. They are to you, right? So, uh, so uh, you know, general people out there who've never been involved in a campaign and don't understand necessarily how important a volunteer is, because we're not the U.S. We don't have multi-gazillion million dollar budgets. We don't, have, we don't spend $50 million to get elected. We spend $100,000. Sure. Sure, but, but here's here's and you've set it out extremely well about what the uh, the reports from our spy agency are about election interference. But the key, one of the key things, is that these reports were created and were given to the government, and nothing was done. And then when a few weeks ago, when Justin Trudeau, our prime minister, was asked, "Well, did you ever see these reports?" he, he flat out denied. And, uh, and so this is why uh, the conservative opposition has been trying to get his chief of staff before a committee so that they can find out, you know, what did the prime minister know? When did he know it? And what did he do about it? These are important questions. hundred percent. Some of the, the media reports, the great work that the Globe and Mail has actually done on this that came out, showed that some of these briefings were actually requested by the prime minister's chief of staff after the 2015 election. So between the 2015 and the 2019 election, the chief of staff, the prime minister, had gotten and received briefs on potential interference going back that far. And uh, 
it would be beyond irresponsible for a chief of staff to the prime minister not to share those results with their boss. And uh, the prime minister has stood up countless times when I've been sitting in the house over the last six months and said he was never briefed. It's yeah. just not believable. It's not believable that his chief of staff was getting all this intelligence, that his minister of public safety was getting all of this intelligence, and and that nobody told the prime minister. That doesn't seem to fit the pattern with, with the way this prime minister operates in terms of how strict and stringent and controlled that PMO is on every word that comes out of a minister's mouth. I mean, and the the other thing is, uh, how does this look? Uh, this is not the main issue, but it is an issue. How does this look to our our allies? You know, when these are national security threats that are not just to Canada, but they're they're to all Western democracies. And you know, there's a new security infrastructure that is being built before our eyes for the 21st century, AUKUS and Kanzuk and so on, and we're just not a part of it. All of that is going on because obviously we're a security threat. There were reports uh, last week in the media that the U.S. had uh, uh, raised uh, Canada's uh, uh, exposure to influence from the Chinese Communist Party uh, as a security risk for the United States. And I can understand that. We have the largest independent border in the world. We share intelligence. We are, they're our closest ally. Uh, uh, but you're going to be concerned that they're operating here. And I'll give you an example. In the world of the industry world that uh, you mentioned that I'm responsible for, Tony, one of the, one of the uh, things that's come up uh, in the last couple of months and, uh, and it's going to receive more study is there's a bill, Bill C-34, which was tabled before Christmas, which is changes to the Investment Canada Act. Now, I won't go into the details of that bill, but under this government, under the Investment Canada Act, the government has the ability to ask for a full national security review when a state-owned enterprise, a company owned and or significantly controlled and influenced by a foreign government, is buying a Canadian company. And during the uh, Trudeau era, they have been approving the sale of many strategic companies in Canada without requesting a national security review being acquired by Chinese state-owned enterprises. And some of this came to light uh, again over just before Christmas. One particular one is that the RCMP and the Canadian Border Services, two important security organizations for this country had awarded tendered contracts for equipment, telecommunications equipment, uh, to uh, a company based in Canada that is ultimately owned by a Chinese state-owned, uh, a Chinese entity out of Beijing called Hytera, hmm. which is state-owned and has never made any money. It bids and wins telecommunications contracts around the world and underbids and takes advantage of our open market right. to underbid companies that have to operate on a profitable basis, undercuts them in the government bidding process to put telecommunications equipment in Chinese controlled and access to the RCMP's communication system. Incredible. And it's incredible. And the, I, the, a couple of weeks ago, 
I had the uh, RCMP before the industry committee. And I asked the uh, senior RCMP officers, I said, in January 2022, Hytera was charged with 21 uh, crimes of espionage in the United States. And President Biden banned Hytera and any of its companies from doing business in the United States as a result. Incredible. Eight yeah. months later, the RCMP gives a contract to Hytera, and I asked, so did you know, did you know that they had been charged with 21 counts of espionage in the United States eight months later? And you know what the RCMP said? No. Oh, my word. So that's just a small piece of what's going on. So there's the influence uh, of the elections. Uh, and why would they, Tony, why would they want to pick one candidate over another? Like, why would they favor the Liberal Party under Justin Trudeau over uh, Stephen Harper in 2015, Andrew Scheer in 2019, Aaron O'Toole in 2021? They have a motivation, obviously. Yeah, that, that, that serves their interests. Yeah, that serves their interests, right? They, they want to have a friendlier government, you know? This is a prime minister who said, when he was leading the Liberal Party in an opposition, that the country he admired most was China. And so they've had an incredibly soft on China uh, approach uh, that has been uh, obviously noticed by the uh, senior operatives in the, in the Chinese sure. Communist Party. And they want to get those people elected versus, uh, in particular in 2021, Aaron O'Toole had a fairly hard policy against the Communist Party of China. Yes, he did. Yes, I remember. Yeah. And he wanted a registry of foreign agents. Right. And that's why they went after Kenny Chu in Vancouver, because right. Kenny Chu put a private member's bill in to put a registry of foreign agents together, which does exist in some of our al other allied countries, but doesn't in Canada. So we've got just a couple minutes left. Uh, obviously, the liberal approach to this, uh, Justin Trudeau appointed as a special rapporteur, the Right Honorable David Johnston, former Governor General. Um, but that really hasn't gone over as well as I, I think that uh, Mr. Trudeau thought it would. You know, it was a it was obviously a very politically uh, motivated choice. Uh, David Johnson is, without question, a, a, a man with an impressive contribution to our country and an impressive... Uh, a, a, a very decent fellow, an honorable fellow. But this isn't about David Johnson. It's about in, in, there is the rule of law and what a conflict of interest, but what is really important is not having the appearance of a conflict of interest. Indeed. This is an individual who's going to advise the prime minister about whether or not there should be a public inquiry. Now, he's, he sat on the foundation of the Trudeau family, the Trudeau Foundation. He has had a cottage next to the, the Trudeau family cottage where Pierre Elliott Trudeau and the kids play. His kids uh, and Justin Trudeau and Pierre Trudeau's kids and Justin Trudeau as a child, they played together. They water ski together. They are close family friends. Now, sure. Can David Johnson operate uh, and separate that? That's not really the issue. The issue is 
no matter what he says or does or recommends, it's going to be tainted because he's not uh, independent. Surely in a country of 38 to 40 million people, there was an eminent person that he could find that was not connected to the Liberal Party or uh, true. We have lots of former Supreme Court judges he could have picked. Well, at least he didn't. At least he didn't appoint Beverly McLaughlin. Thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, She's compromised. What her, current, her, what her current career is. Yeah, what her current <laughs> career, uh, making sure that uh, the people of Hong Kong are oppressed. Well, but the the fundamental issue is: what do we need this rapporteur for anyway? The, uh, the 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 mandate apparently is to help the is to decide for the prime minister since he can't seem to make a decision. Uh, the prime minister has said he'll do whatever the the rapporteur says, whatever yeah. uh, David Jones says, on the issue of whether or not there should be a public inquiry. Well, that's the prime minister's job. The prime minister should be making that decision, and the cabinet should be making that decision. And and uh, if they truly wanted and believed that they wanted a, a person that was above any kind of appearance of conflict, they should have consulted in that and gotten the approval of the opposition parties before they made the appointment in order to ensure that it was seen to be, not only was free of conflict, but seen to be absolutely beyond reproach, which this isn't. And they chose not to do that because David Johnson was appointed by Stephen Harper, so they thought they used that as a political tool politicize the investigation on Chinese interference. What they say in Nova Scotia when these things happen is they were too clever by a half. Exactly, 100%. Rick Perkins, uh, we got we to gotta leave it at that for now. Obviously, this is a, a massively developing story, and uh, I know Board you're right on. Goes to Parliament tomorrow. Goes to Parliament tomorrow. We're recording we have the opposition day debate on it today in the House. Yeah, exactly. So uh, we'll, we'll find out what happens there, but regardless, I... Uh, this story ain't going away. So thanks for giving your perspective and, and the Conservative Party of Canada's perspective on it. And uh, I guess we'll have to have you back uh, for an update at some point. I do want to uh, thank our sponsor again, municipalsolutions.ca uh, uh, and John Mutton and the gang. And of course, this podcast will be rebroadcast by Hunters Bay Radio. Thanks for listening. And hopefully Jody will be around and back and we can have our usual banter. Thanks for listening today, though.